you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 11, or it's printed in your worship guide. We're going to continue on in our Advent series looking at the women who are listed in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. So we've mentioned before how ancient genealogies, they just don't include women. And you would only want to highlight like worthy ancestors. You just want the best of the best listed there. You don't want any poor stock. It's kind of like a resume today. Like we only list the good stuff. You only list the things employers want to see, the things that make you employable. You don't list mistakes you've made or reasons you've been fired in the past. And I mean, studies show that even the good stuff we usually list isn't all true. That's on our resumes anyway. But so far, Matthew has gone out of his way completely to highlight these blemishes. We've already covered the first three women in the list. They shouldn't be there anyway, but then when we look at them, we see that the women who are highlighted are, they're all foreigners so far. They all have messy stories, especially Tamar, who gets pregnant through incest, and Rahab, who's a prostitute. But these are Jesus' people. These are his roots. These are where he comes from. And he's not ashamed of it. People like them are exactly why he came. A few chapters later in Matthew, Jesus is going to say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. They're his people. They're the ones for whom he has come. So we come this morning to the fourth woman listed in Matthew's genealogy. And hear how Matthew lists her. This isn't printed, but I'll read it to you. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name isn't even listed there. She's the wife of Uriah. That's not meant to belittle her, to say that she's nothing more than someone's wife. Instead, we've actually come to the high point of the genealogy. We've come to the good stuff. King David, finally, someone worth having. Someone we'd want in our family tree. Someone the Savior needs in his family tree. The great King David, the man after God's own heart who slew the giant. Why can't they all be more like King David? He's the one you want on your resume. But who are Solomon's parents? David and the wife of Uriah. It's not belittling to Bathsheba. It's actually just highlighting David's shame and his own need for a savior. And where we've seen obvious brokenness and sin the last few weeks, now we come to a good one. And what we see is that none is good enough. And yet, no matter what we may have done, there is still hope in the grace of God. Some of you in here might think that you're pretty good. If you've done 90%, you just need Jesus to pull you across that finish line, that last 10%. Or maybe you think you don't need a Savior at all. But what we'll see in David this morning, who is the best of the best on the list, that you are fooling yourself if that's what you think. And yet there's hope even for you. Others of you have committed some pretty big sins. And it's easy to wonder if you can be forgiven. If you've gone too far. 
But we'll see this morning that because of Christ, there's no such thing. So let's look at our passage this morning. And the question we're going to ask of it is, what do we learn about our need for a Savior from the description, the wife of Uriah? We're going to take it in chunks. It's kind of a long passage. So we're going to take it in chunks and let the story unfold as we go through. So we'll begin with verses 1 to 5. Hear God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're familiar with the story of David so far, this comes as a big shock. This is out of left field. This is not what you would imagine coming next. God called him a man after his own heart. David trusted in God to fight his battles for him. He wouldn't even lay hands on Saul, who was trying to kill him, because Saul was God's anointed. Just four chapters prior, 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with him. And he says that his kingdom and his house and his throne will be established forever. He's King David. He's the one I'm named after. So he's got to be good, right? So how do we get here? How do we get to this? There's a hint in verse 1. It's the time of year when kings go out to battle and Israel goes out. But what does David do? He remains in Jerusalem, kind of abdicating his responsibility that he's supposed to be representing his people and leading them. But he remains in Jerusalem. And while the army's away, what's David doing? Napping on his couch. Nothing wrong with a good nap. I'm hoping to get one in a couple hours here. But when compared to his army, it's not a good look. Right? So he wakes up from a siesta one afternoon and he walks around on the roof. He's looking around and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. Now, she's not doing anything wrong. And contrary to how we've often clumsily read this passage or just taken Leonard Cohen's word for it, it doesn't say she's on a roof. She's not flaunting her beauty or trying to seduce anyone. She's actually doing a ceremonial cleansing in obedience to God's word. She's obeying the law in what she's doing. So David asks about her, and he's told that she's Bathsheba. She's Eliam's daughter and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Her dad, Eliam, is probably one of David's 30 mighty men, as is Uriah. So the dad and the husband are two of David's best and most loyal soldiers. People who have been with him probably since before he was even king. And yet he takes Bathsheba. And sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. So how will David respond? In confession and repentance or something else? Continue on and read the rest of chapter 
11 here. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. When they, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live... And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So instead of confession, David offs, opts for a cover-up and this compounding of his sin. He sends for Uriah. He talks to him, sends him home, hoping he'll sleep with his wife so that it could be Uriah's baby. He'd know the truth, but Uriah wouldn't, and it'd solve David's problem. He'd get away with it. But Uriah won't do it. He sleeps in the guardhouse because he's still on duty. So David tries again, even asking him why he didn't go home. And Uriah says, the ark, the ark that represents God's presence and the army are out in the fields. They're in tents while David's at home, right? I can't go home and eat and drink and sleep with my wife. I won't do it. So you see this contrast between David and Uriah. But David's conscience isn't even pricked by that. 
Even though he is the Davidic king, the one anointed by God to lead the people. Instead, he gets Uriah drunk, hoping that that will move things along for him. That he'll want to go be with his wife. But no, he sleeps in the guardhouse again. Well, plan A failed. So now it's time for plan B. David's doubling down. He sends Uriah back, carrying a letter that is his death sentence. The irony is just crazy that David's not even worried about him opening it and reading what it says. He trusts him. He knows that he can send it, and this guy's going to be faithful to him. Joab follows the orders, and some other men are killed along with Uriah. It's not just one murder, it's several. Then he sends a messenger to David to deliver the news, and the messenger does so. You notice he jumps right to the end to say, Uriah the Hittite's dead also, so he doesn't even have to deal with David's anger, because David will talk about how dumb the, the strategy was. But it accomplished the purpose. David responds by telling him to tell Joab, don't let this matter displease you. Or more literally, it's translated, don't see this as evil. Why not? Sword kills one, then another. It's war. People die. Be encouraged. Even though you just killed your men. Right? The wife of Uriah hears of Uriah's death and laments over him. When her time of mourning is over, it's probably a seven-day period, David brought her to his home and he marries her. Now this looks really sketchy to us, like he just moved on. He's like, Uriah's dead. I can just do my thing now. But it actually probably looked more noble then, that David's actually stepping up. He's taking care of one of his servants and his friend's widow. He's caring for her. And she has his son. So David thinks he's fine. He doesn't want people to know about the affair. It would have been easier if Uriah just slept with his wife. But Uriah's dead now, so the problem's taken care of. Everything's good. He got away with it. Or did he? The end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Or again, more literally, was evil in the sight of the Lord. If the adultery wasn't bad enough, the cover-up is worse. The sin just multiplies. Just looking just on the very surface of the Ten Commandments, and we went over them this summer, we know they go a lot deeper than that, but just the service, surface goes from coveting someone else's wife to adultery to murder, not even mentioning everything else involved with what he's done. So what do we learn about our need for a Savior from the description, the wife of Uriah. First, we learn that our sin runs deep. Even in the best of us. Even in King David. Even in the one that we're looking for his line to be restored so that we can make Israel great again and go back to this time. Was this great? No, we're looking for something better. Our sin runs deep. We see this at least a couple ways here. So sin is always lurking in our hearts. Bathsheba doesn't seduce David. She's just obeying God's law. Uriah didn't do anything to get on David's bad side. He's actually a loyal and trusted servant. It starts in David's own heart. 
right? So the problem for us isn't just out there. It's not these things that tempt us, that are going to make us do these things. Where if we withdraw from society, if we can remove ourselves from bad influences, or remove ourselves from bad situations, then we'll be good. No. It's in our own hearts. It's there. Always lurking. These seeds that are ready to sprout. It's also like building a snowman. We just had our first big snow, right? The heavy, good, wet stuff that you can build stuff with. None of that dry stuff that doesn't stick together. Right? You start with a little ball. Then you roll it. You roll it and it gets bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you can't really roll it anymore. That's what happens. Right? We think we're not that bad. We wouldn't do what David's done. We wouldn't commit adultery. We definitely wouldn't murder someone and not care if others die along with him. But he's the high point of Israel's monarchy. He's the one that we looked up to. If he can do it, we can do it. And we know that we have these same temptations with, within us. Like you can't honestly tell me you don't covet things. That you don't wish you had things that you don't have. People or products. That your eyes don't linger a little longer on someone at the gym or on this ad that scrolls through your social media. Right? But if we don't confess them and turn from these things, they grow. They so quickly morph into these things that are just out of control. Things that we never thought possible, just given the opportunity. I mean, before this happened, if you told David, he'd laugh in your face. I wouldn't do that. There's no way. But one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're in over your head. James says a similar thing about this progression, the snowball effect. In James 1, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Again, within his own heart. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's this progression to it. What we see in David is that he is not the Savior of Israel. He needs a Savior like the rest of us. And when we honestly consider ourselves, we see that we can't be our own Savior either. That we need a Savior, just like everyone else. And whether those seeds grow to maturation like they did with David here or not, they're still in your heart. They're still there. And given this opportunity, there is nothing apart from the grace of God that will keep you from going there. There, but by the grace of God, go I. So what do we learn about our need for a Savior from the description, the wife of Uriah? First, we learn that our sin runs deep. What else do we learn? Let's read chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he has no pity. So some time has passed. David thinks he's gotten away with his sin. Like it didn't really matter. Like it wasn't really a big deal. But we did get God's assessment. It was evil in the sight of God, of the Lord. God saw it. Even if others are unaware, that's true for us as well. Whether others catch on to your sin or not, God sees it. So God sends his prophet Nathan to David, and Nathan presents him this case to pronounce judgment. That was one of the roles of the kings, would, would be to give these judgments of cases that are going on. He gives him this. There's this rich man with a bunch of animals. Visitor comes. He won't kill one of his own animals for the feast. Instead, he steals this poor guy's pet to slaughter it and feed the, feed the visitor. And what's David's judgment? He's furious at the injustice of it. This man deserves to die. It's going above and beyond even what was kind of the Mosaic Law's penalty for it. That fit more with the second part. Pay the guy back fourfold. But he's indignant at the injustice of it. So now we reach the climax of these whole two chapters that go together. It's here in verse 7. And we'll look through verses 10, verse 10. So Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan turns it on him. You are the man. That's what you deserve. It's the second thing we learn. That our, sir, our sin deserves judgment. And we actually never get away with it. It's never not a big deal. Because in our sin we despise the word of the Lord. We do what is evil in his sight. And he always sees it. Right, that might seem strange here as it's clearly harming Bathsheba and Uriah, but the pronouncement is that he has despised the word of the Lord. And our prayer of confession is from Psalm 51. It's the psalm David wrote right after this in response to this event. And he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified by your words and blameless in your judgment. See the parallels between this passage in that psalm, of course he's hurt Bathsheba. 
He's killed Uriah. But the point is that God is the judge, that he sets the standard. And it's God's standard, his word and commands that David has transgressed. And God is blameless in his judgment. David deserves whatever the Lord gives him. The Lord is just. And apart from the Lord, apart from this external source, this external standard from a loving God, we have no reason to draw any ethical lines. If there's no one outside of us that tells us what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is good and evil, then there is no sin. There is no evil or good. There is no justice or injustice if there is no personal God who created all things. But there is. And he is a good God. And he gives us his commands that are for our good. And he does care about justice. He is a just God. And we can relate to David's judgment of the rich man right? We feel it. We hear, that, we hear that parable. We feel the same way David does. We know that he was wrong. And like David, we're willing and often happy to pronounce these judgments. We all want justice. As long as we're not the guilty one. That's where it turns, isn't it? When we're the guilty one, there's always extenuating circumstances, right? Someone else lies, and you cannot trust them because they're a liar. I lie, and I had good reasons for it. I'm not a liar. I just lied that once. <laughs> you see, double standard? That's what we do. Or if you're like me, there are a lot of people on the road that should be pulled over and ticketed. Right? But if I get pulled over, it's not fair. Talking about how we view other drivers, uh, Pastor Scott Sauls, he says that uh, every driver that drives slower than him is an idiot, and everyone that drives faster than him is a maniac. Right? If you're not doing it just like me, I'm doing it right. You guys are all wrong. We're quick. <laughs> CJ gets it. We're quick to see the fault in everyone else. But we excuse our own sin. We have good reasons for it. But the Lord heads this off pretty quickly with David. He doesn't say it's not that big of a deal. He says, you of all people, you of all people should know how serious your sin is because how much you've experienced my grace. I anointed you. I made you king over the whole nation. I delivered you from Saul. And if that weren't enough, I would have given you more. We can't continue to try making little of our sin. Acting like it's not a big deal. Acting like it doesn't matter. So stop. Stop acting like it doesn't matter if you don't do the big things. Like the other people out there. Because to despise the word of the Lord in any way deserves his judgment. Just because the majority of people in Wisconsin go and get drunk every weekend does not mean 
that to do so is not to despise the word of the Lord. Just because pornography use is endemic in our society does not mean that to watch it is not to despise the word of the Lord. Just because everyone hurls insults at their political opponents doesn't mean that to do so is not to despise the word of the Lord. Just because our society pits everyone against one another, that doesn't mean that to fail to forgive and to love our enemies is not to despise the word of the Lord. All of those are evil in the sight of the Lord and deserve his just wrath and judgment. Because sin's like a snowball, given the right circumstances, none of us is immune to these things that we view as little things growing into more and more heinous sins. We're capable of worse than we think. Because God is just. He cares more about justice than any one of us could. And all of these sins will be judged. So what do we learn about our need for a Savior? First, that our sin runs deep. Second, that our sin deserves judgment. Does this mean that we're without hope? Let's find out as we continue on verses 11 to 14, and then we'll jump to 24 and 25. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What David did in secret and compounded his sins to keep hidden, to keep in the darkness, will happen to him publicly. Under the sun, it will be visible. How does David respond? With confession. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. He confesses his sin and is forgiven. There are still consequences for his sin. The rest of David's reign is not great. The section we skipped is very sad. But what Nathan announces happens. I'm not saying everything in your life is a punishment or judgment on sin, but I am saying that we do have to live with the consequences of our choices. And sometimes things are broken and will not be restored this side of heaven. Sometimes they can. But there are consequences. And some of us know these consequences all too well. And we're left in difficult marriages. We know the brokenness of our families, especially at Christmas when it's just highlighted, when we're dreading it. It's hard. 
We know the heartache and struggle of ruined friendships. We know the financial difficulties that result from poor decisions we've made. These are all real things that we feel the impact of every day. That don't just disappear. They fill our minds and our hearts with regret. And we can't escape. That tempt us to think that maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't love us. Maybe we're too far gone. But that's not the truth. The consequences of our sin may remain. David deals with them the rest of his life. But more important than these earthly circumstances, he is forgiven and reconciled to God, the one he sinned against. The Lord has not rejected him. Bathsheba conceives again and has Solomon. And notice that there in verse 24, other than when she's named the first time, this is the first time she's listed as Bathsheba. Saying, I'm not holding this sin against you. You are forgiven. She is your wife Bathsheba now. And the Lord's evaluation is this. The Lord loved him. So they called him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. He has not been rejected by God. Instead, when he knows the depth of his sin and the judgment he deserves, when he doesn't obfuscate, but he looks his sin and his judgment square in the face, he instead knows even more of the love and mercy of his Savior. We read at the beginning of Psalm 51 there, the Jesus Storybook Bible, talking about the steadfast love, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. He knows that more because he's facing his sin and he sees God's mercy and grace because of it. And so will you if you face your sin honestly. When you see your sin as small, you will see God as small. You will see Christ as small. But when you know the magnitude of your sin, God and his mercy and grace grow and grow and grow to cover it. Though our sin runs deep and our sin deserves judgment, our sin can be forgiven. David trusted in the mercy and grace and steadfast love of God. And he was forgiven. When we look back at this through the lens of Christmas, through Jesus' genealogy, what we see through the birth of Solomon by the wife of Uriah is that great David's greater son has come. The one for whom David was looking. The one who saves his people from their sin. Our true king who will reign forever. The prince of peace. On this side of the cross, we get to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The son of David, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And every one of you here today needs him. You're not good enough. Your sin runs too deep. No matter how big or small you view it, it deserves judgment. Because God is just, it will be judged. 
there is hope. Your sin, no matter how heinous, can be forgiven. Jesus offers himself to you. If you will confess your sins and turn from them and trust in him, he will take your sins. He will take your judgment and he will give you his righteousness. You will not die but have everlasting life. Our sin runs deep and our sin deserves judgment, but our sin can be forgiven if we will only confess our sin and trust in Jesus. Will you do that this morning? Or will you continue to cover it up or pretend like it's not there or that it doesn't matter?